0: Well, if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you'd open it to uh, Exodus chapter 8. This morning, we're going to try and plow our way through chapters 8 to 10 as we continue on in our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, I won't have anything like enough time to read all three chapters. So I think you will be helped if you have a Bible open. I'll try to refer to uh, um, passages, and it might help you to have those open in front of you uh, so that you can see what I'm pointing to. Now, if you remember the setting, At this point in history, the people of Israel have been enslaved in the nation of Egypt uh, for quite some time. As the book of Exodus opens, uh, the people cry out to God, and God responds by raising up Moses uh, to lead them out of bondage. The idea is that God sends Moses to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Moses is to demand on the Lord's behalf that the Pharaoh allow the people of Israel to leave The Lord has promised he is going to bring his people into the lush and verdant land of Canaan where they will live and serve him as his people. Uh, But the drama of Exodus arises, at least the beginning of Exodus arises from the fact that Pharaoh uh, wasn't thrilled about the idea of losing his free source of labor. Uh, So he refuses to let the people go. Last week we saw the first of ten plagues that the Lord would eventually send on the nation of Israel, or on the nation of Egypt, as God, we saw last week at the end of chapter 7, turned the Nile River into blood. The plan is today we'll think about the next eight plagues, so numbers 2 through 9, and then, Lord willing, next week think about uh, that final plague that, that seals the deal with Pharaoh. Now, the word translated plague in our English Bibles, when it talks about these plagues, it's, it's literally the Hebrew word for blow, as in uh, to strike a blow. Uh, in one sense, you can see these 10 plagues, almost like 10 punches that God is landing on the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh. Uh, last week, we saw in chapter seven, verse three, that the Lord referred to these 10 things he was about to do as signs and wonders. There's a very real sense in which these 10 plagues are meant to point to a reality, right? They're not not just random mean things that God thinks up to do to Pharaoh and Egypt, but rather there are are 10 sort of signs, uh, 10 things meant to instruct, uh, 10 things meant to demonstrate and teach something very important, And that actually fits with something that we've said over the years whenever we come to passages of the Old Testament like this. Because we've been studying the book of Exodus for a little while, and and I think we have to admit that it can be at times a bit daunting. Here we are looking at events that took place thousands of years ago, halfway around the world, in a very different culture. And it's easy to think and to wonder, what on earth does this have to do with me? I mean, unless your job is to confront ancient dictators and demand the release of their workforce. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of direct application from today's passage to our lives. But something that we've said over the years, whenever we come to Old Testament narratives, that there really are four ways that we can try to benefit from these kinds of passages. So maybe this is review for some of you. Maybe this is the first time you've heard it. But, but when you come to an Old Testament narrative, there are usually four different ways that you can seek to, to understand something and apply it to your life. Now first, you can read passages like this, so Old Testament stories, uh, for theology. That is to say, in these stories we, we learn something or are reminded of something about God. We learn something about what God is like. We can see that God is holy as he executes judgment against sinful people. We can see that God is loving and powerful as he protects his people from their enemies. We see that God is merciful and forgiving as he so often doesn't give people what they deserve. And so as we go along in this passage for today, but also throughout the book of Exodus, look for ways that God is demonstrating something of his character. Second, we can read these Old Testament stories for ethical instruction. So in these passages, we see good guys doing good things and bad guys doing bad things. And so, in a sense, these stories have the power to shape our moral imagination. You might remember when we were studying 1 Corinthians not too long ago, in chapter 10, verse 6, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about how they ought to live. So he's talking to to New Testament believers, and he tells them to look back to the example of the Israelites wandering in the desert. He tells the Corinthian church, those things were written down for your benefit, so that they would serve as an example to you, so that you wouldn't do the bad things that they did. So there's a way in which it's good to read these Old Testament stories and find moral instruction. Okay, so we read them for theology, we read them for moral instruction. We also read these kinds of stories for a sense of redemptive history. So the events that we're gonna look at today are not disconnected from the rest of the storyline of the Bible. Right, these events in Exodus flow right out of the storyline of Genesis. And they bleed over into what happens in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, to name a few. So the, the psalmists and the prophets are going to look back on what we read about in Exodus. And they're going to use these events to give them a, a vocabulary to describe what, it's look like, what it looks like to be God's people. But behind everything happening in the book of Exodus is the hand of God. Right, guiding the history of his people to bring about their redemption and salvation. So we read a passage like this and we, we try to figure out where does it fit in in that greater story of what God is doing to save his people. And then fourth and finally, we read the book of Exodus for Jesus. Right, and this is where we part company as Christians from the way our, our Jewish friends would read these stories. So in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after his crucifixion and resurrection, tells his disciples that everything that was written about him in, quote, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? What Jesus is saying there to his disciples is that everything in the Old Testament, right, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, those are the three major categories of of writing in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is actually about him. He opens his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and it's to show them that actually everything in the Old Testament is about him and his death and his resurrection. So in our passage for this morning, we'll be looking for Jesus. We'll be seeing how it is that God saves his people, how it is that he forgives his people, how it is that God expects his people to relate to him. And all of those things are going to point us forward to Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God's salvation. Jesus ultimately is the one who makes sense of the stories we read in the book of Exodus. So we'll look for all of those things as we go through these three chapters, Exodus chapter 8 to 10. But in, in this passage particularly, I think we're meant to focus in on that first piece. Right? What it is that we learn about God. I think chapters 8 to 10 are particularly aimed at, at giving us a theology lesson. If you remember last week, we saw Pharaoh asked what really becomes the crucial question of this narrative. Back in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, he asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? In many ways, what we read today in chapters 8 through 10 is the Lord answering that question. In these plagues that the Lord sends, in these signs and wonders, the Lord is giving Pharaoh an answer. In fact, he's going to go beyond just showing Pharaoh who he is. He's actually going to show the whole world who he is. So you see this in our passage in in various places. So if you have your Bible open, if you look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, Moses tells Pharaoh right after the plague of frogs that the Lord is going to remove them. And he tells him why there in Exodus 8, 10. He says, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The Lord's going to send this plague and then remove this plague so that you might know. Then in chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord says that he's actually going to spare the people of Israel from the plagues. Again, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. If you flip over to chapter 9, verse 14, the Lord says this. He says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. So he's speaking to Pharaoh here. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then in chapter 10 verse 2, the Lord tells Moses that what he's doing here to Pharaoh should echo down through all the generations. He says in Exodus 10:2, he says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord is using these plagues to demonstrate who he is and what he's like. There is a a pedagogical purpose to these events. They are signs. Think about it. The Lord could have just wiped Pharaoh off the face of the earth. he He could have just cleaned Egypt out. He could have just changed Pharaoh's mind to make him want to let the people of Israel go. He could have just cut to the 10th plague, that final, decisive, inescapable plague. He could have just transported his people directly out of Egypt and placed them in the promised land. But God does none of those things. Instead, he inflicts these 10 terrors on the most powerful nation in the region so that they will learn. And so that we will learn something of what he's like. So there are a lot of things we could take away from this passage. Let me just highlight three things that I think the Lord is particularly demonstrating about himself in these plagues uh, here in chapters 8 through 10. First, I think we're meant to see that the Lord is demonstrating that he alone is the true God. Right? There is a certain rhythm that, that builds up. There's a pattern to these plagues. It seems like they are organized in three sets of three with the 10th and final plague, the, the death of the firstborn that Lord willing will consider next week, acting as something of a grand finale. So 10 plagues organized into three sets of three with kind of a grand finale at the end. So in chapter 7 last week, we saw the Nile being turned into blood. Uh, there at the beginning of chapter 8, we see a, a plague of overwhelming frogs uh, there in the middle of chapter 8, uh, you see uh, a plague of swarming gnats, or some translations prefer lice, which is grosser, uh, there in the middle of the chapter. Right, those three plagues kind of go together as one set. Uh, then, as you move on in chapter 8, you have flies over the entire land, followed by the, the death in chapter 9 of all the Egyptian livestock. And then, uh, later on in chapter 9, you have terrible boils, or sores, all over the people and the animal. That's a a second set of of three. Then at the end of chapter 9, you have a devastating hailstorm. It says hail like it had never been seen before. In chapter 10, you have an infestation of locusts that come and strip away all the vegetarian, followed by, the end of chapter 10, total darkness. That's the final triad. Each one of those sets of three plagues Uh, begins with Moses and Aaron meeting Pharaoh at the water. Pharaoh would go out daily, as was his habit, to to worship his gods. And so Moses and Aaron meet him on his way to the water. They announce Yahweh, the Lord's demands, right? Let my people go. They proclaim that a plague is coming if Pharaoh doesn't obey. So last week we saw that at the end of chapter 7 as the Nile was turned to blood. Each time we see Pharaoh ignore the warning, the Lord sends the plague, Uh, Pharaoh refuses to relent, there's another warning, another plague, another refusal, and then the third plague arrives without warning. So we see that cycle repeat itself in these chapters three times. Moses and Aaron meet Pharaoh, confront him, Plague plague comes, he refuses, plague comes, he refuses, plague comes. Then it starts over. Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh. What, what scholars have noticed is that each one of these plagues that, that the Lord sends on Egypt, they seem to be aimed specifically at one of the members of the Egyptian pantheon. That is to say, they seem to be sort of targeting one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So, for example, the Egyptians worshipped a god, a god called Hapi. Uh, they worshipped him as the ruler of the Nile River. So last week we saw the Lord turned the Nile River into blood. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped a god called Heket, really a goddess, the goddess of fertility. She was represented in their artwork as a frog standing on two human legs. So here in chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see that the Lord causes the land to teem with frogs. So we read there in chapter 8, verse 3, the Lord promises the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Right, the Lord is is sending fertile frogs, right? It seems like it's particularly aimed at at sort of tweaking their their goddess of fertility. Uh, The Egyptians worshiped a god called Geb who ruled the earth. So there in the middle of uh, Exodus uh, chapter 8, the Lord causes the dirt to actually become gnats that afflict the Egyptians, right? So on and so on and so on, right? The Egyptians worshiped a cow god, so the Lord strikes down their cattle, right? The the, the Egyptians venerated the sun god, Ra, and so the Lord turns the sun into darkness, right? And that, that ultimately sets up what turns out to be the kill shot next week As the Lord takes out Pharaoh's oldest son, right, who, of course, is the future Pharaoh, the Egyptians revered their their king as a god. They believed he represented the, the divine might and power that made Egypt great as a nation. And so the Lord is striking right at the heart of their national identity and their religious beliefs. Right, we know that we're on the, the right track with our interpretation here because when the book of Numbers reflects back on these plagues, we read, speaking of the Egyptians in Numbers 33 verse 4, it says, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. Right, so we're, we're meant to understand these plagues as the Lord executing a kind of judgment on the, the so-called gods of Egypt. He is showing that he alone is the true God. I think we also see the Lord demonstrating his supremacy in this showdown with Pharaoh in that throughout these three chapters, what we see is that God, the Lord, is the one who consistently tells the truth. And Pharaoh is repeatedly shown to be a liar. So there in chapter 8, verse 8, after the frogs swarm the land, we read, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. But then as soon as you get to verse 15, the frogs are dead and Pharaoh changes his mind. Then in chapter 8, verse 28, we read after the plague of flies, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let, people, did not let the people go. Right, it's interesting there that when Pharaoh wants relief from these plagues, he can't go to his own gods. Right? He has to go to Moses and ask Moses to go to the true God for help. Right, time and time again in this passage, Pharaoh says things that don't come true. Right, he says, in essence, Moses, I will never let you go. But as we see next week, he's going to let him go. Over and over again, he, he relents and promises that he will let Israel go. Only to go back on his word time and time again. Moses, even there in the passage we just read, has to say like, Hey, are you going to cheat this time? Because you're kind of a cheater. The Lord, on the other hand, always does exactly what he promises. Over and over again, what we see in this passage is that the Lord says something, and then he does exactly that. Right? I think the point is hard to miss. The Lord is the true God. He is the one who speaks the truth. He alone has the power to say what happens next. The so-called gods of Egypt were fakes. They were pretenders. They were phonies. They, they would not and could not save anyone who worshipped them. And brothers and sisters, I think this is a really helpful reminder for us. Right? The, the world we live in has its own gods. Not many people worship frogs or rivers anymore. But we have our own gods. We worship success, money, power, sex, individual autonomy. And it's easy for us when we see those God substitutes being worshipped and exalted, right? and we see the true God being ignored and mocked, I think it's easy to lose courage. It's easy to feel like something has been... irrecoverably lost. But friends, the Lord has not changed since the days of Moses. He is supreme over all, and he doesn't lose. If you think about it, it may have looked to generations of Israelites who were living in bondage in Egypt as if the gods of the Egyptians were the powerful ones. But friends, all along, the Lord was simply working his plan in his timing, And so in the same way, we can trust that whatever's happening out there in the world, the Lord is never being taken by surprise. He is never being supplanted. He is never being moved off of his throne. In the end, the Lord is the only true God, and he will show himself to be the only true God. I think it's also really important for us to grapple with the fact that God always tells the truth. Right? Pharaoh is a skeptic, right? Up until the very moment that it's too late, right, right until he's face down in, in the Red Sea, he doesn't believe that the Lord can and will do what he said he will do. He either thinks that God is bluffing or, or he thinks that as Pharaoh, he has access to some kind of power that can stay God's hand. But friend, it's, it's worth asking, whether or not we're making the same mistake. God has told us what he is going to do. God has told us that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And at that point, every person will be judged for their sins. We'll be judged for the ways that we've disobeyed God, the ways we've loved and trusted other things instead of him. We'll be judged for the ways we failed to live with kindness and generosity and love. But the question is, do you believe that that's true? Or or have you concluded that God's actually not telling the truth? Or perhaps that he lacks the power to carry out his intentions? Friends, a Christian is someone who has concluded that, in fact, God will do exactly what he says he will do. The very good news is that God extends mercy and forgiveness to anyone who will turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ. But... If like Pharaoh, you insist on testing God, if you insist on seeing if he really is faithful and true to his word, then friend, you will end up like Pharaoh, realizing only too late uh, that God speaks the truth. So that's the first thing for us to see this morning, that God is the only true God. And that leads us to something similar, something related that God is showing us in these plagues, and that is he is the one who has all power. That's fairly obvious, I think. Right? God is demonstrating his control over the weather, the sun, the, the insects of the world, the animal kingdom. Right? Everything in the world is being harnessed in these plagues to serve his purposes. Right? You see that when the, when the magicians of Egypt try to go toe-to-toe with the Lord. They're only ever able to make things worse. There in chapter 9, we read, that the plague of boils that the Lord sent was particularly brutal. So in verse 11, it says this, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Right, that seems to be symbolic and significant Pharaoh's magicians represented his best attempt to replicate or frustrate the power of the Lord. But here, the magicians are reduced to being merely victims along with everyone else. There in Exodus 8, verse 18, during the plague of gnats, there's a similar dynamic. It says, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. Not sure how they thought that was going to help, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Right? The magicians are starting to get the point that Pharaoh doesn't seem willing to acknowledge. Look, we, we can't stand, we can't go toe-to-toe with this God. The power of Egypt, the power of Egypt's gods, they are nothing before the Lord. Right? The magicians are left to acknowledge and confess what Pharaoh will not. The Lord is the one with all power. In fact, if you look closely at the nature of these plagues, they all seem to be designed to show that the Lord is the one who particularly created the world. Right? There's a creation thread that runs all through these plagues. You see it in the plague of frogs. Uh, we read earlier in chapter 8, verse 3, the Lord said the Nile will swarm with frogs and that they will infest the whole land. That word swarm is creation language. So when the Lord created the world, back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, uh, we're told, and God said, let the waters swarm. That's the same Hebrew word that we see here in Exodus, chapter 8. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm. Again, the same Hebrew word that God uses here in Exodus 8. According to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. See, God is the creator who makes the animals and the birds and the fish swarm. In the creation account, that's a good thing. He's he's populating the earth with all of these animals and fish. Here, he is unleashing his, his ability to make things swarm on his enemies. He's unleashing his creation power against the nation of Egypt. I think you see this also in the third plague, the gnats. Uh, In chapter eight, verse 17, we read this. And they did so. Aaron, this is what Aaron had been told to do, stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Right again, this is language that reminds us of creation. God created mankind from the dust of the earth. Now God is turning the dust against them. He's again turning creation against Egypt. Uh, With the plague of locusts in chapter 10, uh, we read there in verses 14 to 15. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, and the land was dark, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. All right again, if you think back to the Genesis accounts of creation, one of the defining features of what God made was the sort of lush, verdant garden that he made for mankind to live in. Genesis 2 talks about trees that were were good for food and beautiful to look at. But here, God is decreating Egypt. He's rolling back his creation. He's sending swarms of locusts to strip everything green from the trees. He's leaving the, the nation, the country, devoid of vegetation. You see, creation... As God's made our world, it shows God's power, but it also shows his love. You see, God didn't create bushes and trees that were good to eat and beautiful to look at simply for himself. God doesn't need apples. He doesn't need peaches. Instead, he created those things for our benefit. And so here, in an act of judgment, God is undoing his creation blessing. It's as if he's saying to Egypt, okay, you think you can live without me? Okay, go ahead and try. I'm just going to go ahead and take back everything I've given you. Finally, in the ninth plague of darkness, we see the sort of completion of this rolling back of creation. Again, think about Genesis 1. What's the first thing that the Lord does in order to bring order to the chaos? He creates light. And again, that's a blessing for us. God didn't need the sun. He didn't need the moon or the stars for himself. If he was going to create a sustainable living environment for humans, we would need light. And so here the darkness over all of Egypt represents, again, God undoing his creation blessing. It's a sign of judgment. So it's clear here the Lord is the creator of all. And so he shows his power over Pharaoh by unleashing creation against him. As Moses says there in chapter 9, verse 29, the point of all of this is that Pharaoh might know that the earth is the Lord's. Right? God is, in a sense, sending the earth against Pharaoh. We see God's power over creation, not just in the plagues, but also, I think, in Pharaoh's response to the plagues. What becomes clear is that the Lord is in control not just of Egypt, not just of the natural world, but he's even in control of Pharaoh's heart. Much has been made of the way the Exodus narrative talks about Pharaoh's heart. Two things seem to be clear at the same time. First, it seems very clear that Pharaoh has hardened his heart towards the Lord. Right, this explains his breathtaking capacity to not learn a very obvious lesson, right? Again, his magicians learned the lesson. Many of the people of Egypt learned the lesson, but Pharaoh keeps changing his mind. He, he keeps convincing himself that he can defy the Lord. He keeps thinking that he can stand up to the Almighty, right? Imagine all of that death, all of that decay, all of that fear, all of that power, And still, you won't come to your senses. We see the reason for that in several places. So in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite from the plagues, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And then down just a bit in verse 32 of chapter 8, it says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. In chapter 9, verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. You see, no amount of evidence seemed sufficient to convince Pharaoh that he should listen to the Lord. And I think that's, again, a really important observation for us. Because the Bible actually says that that same dynamic is at work it's the root of actually not just Pharaoh's unbelief, but all unbelief. When people do not believe in God, when they do not worship him as God, they might claim that it's due to a lack of evidence. Right? I can't see him. I don't know him. The Bible tells us that it's actually rooted, unbelief is rooted in a hard heart. Right? When it boils down to it, Pharaoh's heart won't let his head acknowledge what is obviously true. Pharaoh desperately does not want God to be God. Because if the Lord is God, then Pharaoh has to listen to him. Because he so desperately wants that not to be the case, he simply acts as if it's not. Right? When God won't accommodate Pharaoh's desire to be the center of the universe... Pharaoh decides that he is going to refuse to bow down. Friends, in the same way, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he tells us that we all have plenty of evidence. That all around us, we have the thumbprint of God. Right, from the grandeur of mountains to the complexity of a, a baby growing in its mother's womb. Right, God is speaking to us. He is revealing himself to us. In his word, in our conscience, through the various things that he's made, right? The fact is, if you will not acknowledge God, given all of the things that you have, then while you might not be as bad a character as Pharaoh, I trust you're not, you're still playing the very same game that he played. You are hardening your heart against the signs that God has given you. But that's not all we see here about Pharaoh's heart. It is true that he hardened it in order to avoid learning the lessons of these plagues, right? It is true that he was being rebellious and obstinate and disobedient, but it is also true that the Lord was at work causing his heart to be hard, right? Now, back in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord told Moses that he was going to do this. Exodus 4.21 says this, The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And that's exactly what we see happening in these plague narratives. In chapter 9, verse 12, we read this. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Again, in chapter 10. Verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. In chapter 10, verse 20, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then finally, in verse 27 of chapter 10, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. So what we see here at the very least is that the Lord is utterly sovereign, that he is in control of the human heart. He can cause Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth most likely, to refuse to do the very thing the Lord is commanding him to do. Now the obvious question is, how is that fair? How can God punish Pharaoh for something that God is, in a sense, doing to him? Well, the obvious answer is that Pharaoh isn't innocent in all of this. He is a cruel man who has participated in his own hardness of heart, as we've seen. He's not being forced to do anything here that he doesn't want to do. That's the obvious answer, but it's actually not the answer the Bible gives. The Lord explains to Pharaoh in chapter 9. He tells them why he's doing this right before the plague of hail. He says this, chapter 9, starting in verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So the Lord tells Pharaoh, look, it's not that I couldn't have just wiped you out. Instead, I, I have a purpose for you. Uh, he could have destroyed Pharaoh in a moment, but instead he's, he's been propping him up for a reason. And that reason is that God wanted to show Pharaoh the greatness of his power. He wanted to make it clear to the most powerful man on earth that Yahweh, the Lord, is the all-powerful one, right? And friends, this display was not just for Pharaoh, but actually this display was for the entire world, right? By, by making an example, by making a display of Pharaoh, God was making his fame and power known to the entire world. This is exactly what happened, of course. Many years later, in in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 9, we see this little incident where a Canaanite people, the Hivites, they come to the Israelites, and they they explain why they've come. This is how they tell them. He says uh, in Joshua chapter 9, verse 9, he says that they've come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Many years after that, the Israelite enemies were terrified uh, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They've got the story a little bit wrong there. It's not gods, it's just one god, but they've heard. right? They know The word had spread, the fame of the Lord had gone worldwide. The people of the world knew that the God of Israel was the God who had sent plagues against Pharaoh. Friends, think about it. Even this morning, thousands and thousands of years later, uh, many thousands of miles away from where these events took place, here we are recounting the greatness of God as demonstrated in these plagues. The Lord's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart has been fulfilled even this morning. I think embedded in the Lord's treatment of Pharaoh is an important thing for us to remember. And that is we all exist to bring God glory. And he will bring himself glory in our lives, either by displaying his power over and against the hardness of our hearts or by miraculously softening our hearts so that we might flee to him for salvation. It's clear in Romans chapter 9 that this is God's sovereign choice. Paul uses this example. We don't have time. We'll be here all day to read Romans chapter 9. But if you have more questions and want to investigate it, the Apostle Paul actually unpacks this for us in Romans chapter 9. And he uses this very hardening of Pharaoh's heart as one of his prime examples. That God is sovereign in his choice of who to save. As, as the creator of all things, Paul says God is the potter and we are the clay. He can harden or soften us at his pleasure. And he, he raised up Pharaoh specifically for the purpose of displaying his glory in Pharaoh's destruction. Friends, what is clear from the plagues is that as our creator, God is utterly in control. He's in control of the events of our lives. He's sovereign over even our hearts. He's sovereign in salvation. What we see here is that God will humble everyone, either humbling them in order to save them or humbling them by judging them. He will glorify himself in everyone, either by showing them mercy or by displaying his perfect justice. So that's the second thing for us to see, that God is in control. Uh, The third thing that God is revealing here in this passage, this will be the last thing we consider, is that he is a God who delivers his people. I think this might be the central point of the passage. It's easy to lose sight of it in all of the spectacular and terrifying events that take place. But God's judgment on Egypt, God's judgment on Pharaoh, God's judgment on the gods of Egypt... It is certainly related to their pride and their idolatry. But if you think about it, there were other proud, idolatrous nations on earth at the time. The Lord didn't do this to them. These plagues are aimed at showing Pharaoh that the Lord is a God who rescues his people from their enemies. There are many examples in our passage. For the sake of time, let me just point out one to you. If you look there at the fourth plague in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourselves to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. See, the Lord's command is simple and clear. Let my people go that they may serve me. Friends, that's what God wants for you and for the people of Israel. Freedom and worship. And that's all Pharaoh has to do to make the plagues end. Right? The point of the plagues is to get Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a land where they can live at peace and worship the Lord with his people. God makes that clear, I think, by, distra- by drawing a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. He sets apart the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews live. No flies there. We see this same distinction in the plague of the livestock. In chapter 9, verse 4, we read it was only the Egyptian cattle that died. The Israelites were spared. In chapter 9, verse 11, we read the boils came upon the Egyptians. And it seems that the people of Israel were spared. In chapter 10, verse 23, three days of crushing darkness envelops Egypt, but the people of Goshen have light. Right, the the point is clear. As God says there in chapter 8, He is putting a distinction between His people and Pharaoh's people. Basically, Pharaoh, good luck. If you can save them, save them. I'm saving my people. God is creating a border, He's putting a bright line of demarcation around those who are being saved. And those who are being destroyed. And friends, again, as we sort of connect these events to the larger story of the Bible, this is how God's salvation works. Right? It was this way in the days of Noah, right? when, the, when the flood came on the earth. Those who are in the ark are safe. They experience God's deliverance. Those on the outside experience God's judgment. All right, we're going to see it again, Lord willing, next week in the Passover. Those who have the blood on their door frames are spared. Those without it experience his judgment. Right, God warns people of his judgment so that they can flee to him for safety and shelter. All right, again, notice that the Lord doesn't just drop these plagues without warning. He actually tells the Egyptians what's coming right, so, that, so that they might come to their senses and flee to him. Right, Pharaoh was meant to see these signs and wonders and conclude that he needed the Lord's help. Right there in chapter 9, the Lord speaks about the hail that's about to come. And look at look what he says in, in Exodus 9, verse 18. He says, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. See, The Lord is not executing a sneak attack. He warns them. He's not trying to trick them into falling under his wrath. He tells them exactly what to do in order to be saved. He says, get your stuff inside. And Pharaoh's not impressed. But there in verse 20, we read that some of his staff heard the warning and quietly excused themselves. Right? They had seen enough to know that the Lord wasn't to be trifled with. They feared the word of the Lord. They trusted the word of the Lord. They acted upon it and they were spared the plague. So even in these plagues, we see the Lord showing mercy. Even as he's punishing Egypt, he's working a plan to save some of them, right? He has a sovereign plan for the salvation, not just of the nation of Israel, but for the nation of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, we'll see that some of the Egyptians actually left with the Israelites when they went out of the land. They said, we want to we be in on what you're in on, right? They got the point. There's one God who saves his people, and it's not Pharaoh. And so they fled to the Lord for shelter. God even saved his enemies. God made his enemies part of his people, And so perhaps that's the best place for us to conclude this morning. Because if the point of these plagues is that God might be known for who he is, then we have to acknowledge that what we see here in Exodus 8 to 10 is not the final word. Because God comes to us, not in locusts and hail, but he has come to us finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in his great love for us, even while we were still his enemies, even while our hearts were hard towards him, God set his love on us. And he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us from slavery to sin and death. We were those who stood in the the path of the storm of God's justice. But in his love, he sent his son to save us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on human flesh, He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, the life that you and I should have lived. And he gave up his life on the cross, in our place, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved as his enemies. Jesus took the plague of God's justice on himself. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and now we can be included amongst God's people. We can experience a redemption even greater than Israel's deliverance from Egypt. We can flee from the hailstorm that is to come by putting our trust in him. And friends, that brings us then to the Lord's Supper. Because as we come together to the table, we are celebrating the Lord's kindness. We are celebrating what the Lord has done to bring us into his people. We come to take shelter in his cross to celebrate the love of God for us, demonstrated in the, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And so let's pray to our God together. Let's exalt him for who he is and what he's done for us. And then let's come to the table. Let's pray. Our God, who is like you? You alone are the true God. You alone are have power over all things. You alone are mighty in love to save. And so we rejoice in you, we delight in you, we worship you. We thank you for the good gift of your son. We thank you for the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus, our shelter from the storm of the wrath we deserve. Holy Spirit, would you, Continue your gracious work of pointing us to Christ, softening our hearts, helping us to walk in trust and faith. We ask that you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.